Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another edition of Black Voices Friday. So happy to have you. I'm excited for this one. I'm excited for these next two because these next two are going to be the last two in this current run of Black Voices Friday. So if this is your first one, thank you so much for coming to it. I appreciate you. You got eight other episodes that you can go back and listen to to be introduced to some new black voices. I hope you do that. And if you love it, I hope you tell people, you know, let people in on what you discovered. That's how we keep this thing going. That's how we keep supporting black voices. If you are a regular listener to Black Voices Friday, thank you so much for coming back. I appreciate you. I'm your man, Jackie's Neal, co-host of Culture Kings here on the Earwolf Network and the curator of this Black Voices Friday project. Um, like I said before, this is the penultimate episode of this current run of Black Voices Friday. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about what it's meant to me so far um, as we wrap up this run. I also want to say it will be coming back. So, you know, don't sweat it. It's coming back, y'all. We're just going to take a little break, regroup, get some more great podcasts for you guys to listen to and enjoy and come back and do it in a bigger and better way. Uh, when it does come back, I apologize, you know, right now it's hot as hell where I'm at. So I got some windows open. So if you hear some, you hear some, you know, noise in the background, uh, that's because this remote podcasting has gotten to us all and you just got to deal with, I apologize, but something that you aren't going to have to deal with is not knowing about the podcast we're listening to on this episode, this edition of black voices Friday. It's a really good one, y'all. Now, normally, Airwolf, we are a comedy network, but I think these next two are really, really great because black people, uh, we contain multitudes, everybody, and it's not just all about the comedy, and these next two episodes are going to really say something to you guys. They're really good. Um, they touch on topics that, especially today's episode, that are v- very big deals in the black community right now, in the world right now. Uh, they touch on the things that pretty much is the reason why I wanted to start Black Voices Friday. It's the systematic racism in America. And and I think it's an important note to go out on as we wrap this thing up. And next week's episode is going to be a really good one as well. But this week, Super Duper Podcast. That's the name of the show, guys. It's a really good one. It's hosted by Rob Griggs, and it is a weekly show that delves into various topics involving society and culture. Now, they cover topics such as learning racism, raising children with autism, and why House Party is the greatest movie ever. 
right? So listen, you're going to get some, like I say, you get some dope shit, but you also get the real stuff to talk about as well, the things that we should be listening to and consuming. Uh, the specific episode that you guys are going to be listening to is the second episode of the podcast. And in it, they visit with an expert in the field of African-American studies. Their name is Dr. Dwayne Williams. And Dr. Williams has a B.A. in history and law and society from Malchester College and a Ph.D. in history and African studies from the University of Minnesota. Uh, They discuss why the history of racism in America is not taught in schools. They also delve into the experience of the African-American college student in a major college campus. And Dr. Williams is also a former longtime resident of Minneapolis, Minnesota. So we get his perspective on the murder of George Floyd and if this could be a real tipping point to change in this country. I'm really excited, y'all. It's a good one for you to listen to. I really want you guys to also know a little bit about the host of the show, Rob Griggs. Uh, He's a proud father of triplets. My man got his hands full and they are the greatest joy uh of his life and you know he's just making sure that they know he loves them and they come first and that he will always keep their playlist up to date he wanted me to say that uh he's a man of my heart he's a proud chicagoan just like your man right here and he spends much of his time being the best version of himself so he can make his parents and his family proud Uh, He currently works in marketing and has years of experience in sales, advertising, and account management. He graduated from Kellogg School of Management in Evanston, shout out Evanston, and Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Uh, He's a board member and an alum of Link Unlimited Scholars, which is a program that connects high-potential African-American high school students with mentors and resources and found and gives them foundational skills for success to and through college. So my man is doing a lot. He's out here putting his money where his mouth is. Uh, he's talking to talk and walking to walk. And Super Duper Podcast is his gift to you guys uh, as not only a qualified host, but as a black man in America. And you guys definitely need to listen to it and support it. I hope you enjoy it. We got one more left. You'll be hearing from me next week. I'm excited for you to hear that one as well. But as far as this one, let's get to it, everybody. Enjoy the episode. Listen, I have an idea. An idea. An idea. Besides there when you make lemonade, whatever today has given you. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Super Duper Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Griggs, and we have Super Producer Ads with me today. How you doing, my man? I'm good, brother. Hey man, it's another good day here in the wonderful city of Chicago. The weather is great outside, but of course there's still a lot of civil unrest, man. People are still protesting. Of course, the uh, death of the murder of George Floyd and also of Breonna Taylor, um, you know, but it, it, people being safe, the more organized moves, you know, as there's a uh, coming up uh, per the taping of this podcast, there's a uh, march for kids against racism. It's happening next Saturday, man. So I plan on taking the chipmunks out there. Just I think this is a good time to have. You know, to talk talk to kids about it. You know, get them involved in what's going on and have a real 
open conversation about it, right? You know, just want to do your part. Absolutely. This is what's going on right now. I think it's cool just to just to let them see, yeah. you, know, you know, how this process works. Right. Uh, let them see the benefits of, of, of protesting at a young age. Sure. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I appreciate that, man. So, you know, shout out to everybody who is uh, doing their part to, you know, get justice for, for everyone of Black Lives Matter. That, you know, that's what we support on this podcast. If you don't agree, feel free to unsubscribe because that's what we're going to be saying that a bunch of times. Uh, but again, we thank you for being here. And visiting us at the Super Duper Pod. Follow us on Instagram at Super Duper Pod. And also visit us at hp53productions.com. So as when we're talking about what's going on today, people are still kneeling. Uh, the NFL, man, actually apologized, right? And condemned racism. Now, obviously, they didn't name Ka- Kaepernick by name. <laughs> Just a little, little late. A little late. But, hey, well, you know, but, you know, the stuff is happening right now, right? And, uh you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is really rolling, going strong. And I encourage people to look into organizations like Color of Change. Uh, they are an organization that promotes the advancement of African-Americans and against social justice and also Campaign Zero. They have a campaign called Eight Can't Wait. where They're addressing like these eight small things that can be changed that can really stop uh, police brutality, specifically against African-Americans. So if you're listening Never, hold it, never heard of these campaigns, Campaign Zero and Color of Change. Definitely would like you to check those out. And you've seen all these company statements out too, right? You know, Ben and Jerry's, I mean, went to work. I mean, I'm going to buy Ben and Jerry's pint every week just because of that. They they play no games. They pull no punches. And of course, the biggest concern now, people just doing these statements just because it's a good PR move, right? Yeah. Just laying it out there like, you know, but hey. If you're going to put the statement out there, put your name to it, you know, Godspeed, God bless you. But, you know, I know some companies have it. Some companies are staying silent. I don't know how you feel about it. So I would, in some case, rather they not say nothing if they're just going to do it just because it's a PR. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. If it's genuine, we're all for it. Exactly. Exactly. And so then we have the story of the week, which was uh, Drew Brees. So we're not a sports podcast, just so you know, but we talk about sports things every once in a while. But Drew Brees kind of put his foot in his mouth with his statement. But I got to give it to Drew Brees. So he apologized fairly quickly. And uh, well, that's after people got all up, all up in his butt. Uh, and they had a team meeting about that and everything. He's got a great PR. Uh, hey, firm hey man, he got Olivia Pope, man. They, they went at that fast. But I hope, you know what, you know what, though? I really hope that it is genuine. Mm-hmm. Um I hope that not just a PR thing. Yeah, I hope that image. he was able to to talk to teammates. I know uh, Malcolm Jenkins was a teammate. Bruh. Got at him. Michael Thomas got at him. Bruh. Number one receiver. <laughs> got to be on. Got to be on same. Maybe page. he talked to them and he, you know, was able to uh, to open up uh, his horizons. But uh, but but I, I I hope that's true. I hope he was able to to, to see what was wrong with mm-hmm. with uh, the take that he took uh, on that interview. Sure, sure, sure. And like I saw how he had responded even to Donald Trump, which I think the president was saying he doesn't have to apologize. He shouldn't apologize. And Drew Brees was like, no, sir, uh, you know, this is this is not about the flag. It's not a distraction because that's the thing. It's not about the flag at all. Never, it never was. Never was about the flag at all. And so, you know, th- you know, you hate it. It happens. But hey, man, that put the spotlight on back what the real issue is. And hopefully. We can move on from Drew Brees and get back to the matter at hand. Right. You know, because being Breonna Taylor's uh, killers are still out there on the loose, man. And, and so we that still need justice for her. 
And so what's happening now, you see a lot of non-black people that are, you know, reaching out to their black friends and, you know, checking on them, apologizing, you know, just offering support. And I'm sure that's appreciated. Uh, and of course, a lot of black people are usually saying to folks, you know, you need to be to, to a lot of black people are saying to their non-black counterparts, you know, we just want you to be educa- educated, learn more about us, learn more about our history. And you know, I was listening to a podcast on the ringer, you know, as knows the ringer is one of my favorite things. I love Bill Simmons, man. I hope he's listening to this somewhere, somehow. And they have a podcast called Flying Coach with Pete Carroll, Steve Kerr, and they had a guest of Greg Popovich. And if you listen to the NBA, Greg Popovich is very outspoken against inequity, about injustice, all those things. And they were talking to Pete Carroll kind of made a comment about because they were talking about the Tulsa race riots. And that's something that people just don't know about at all. Right. And it's one of the biggest massacres that have happened in you know the United States. But you never hear about it. It's, it's a shame that it's it's not mentioned. I, I didn't learn about it in school. Same. I didn't learn. I mean, honestly, I probably learned about it maybe a little over five or six years ago. A friend of mine mentioned it to me in a book, and I mean, I'm embarrassed to say it, but it's just like, you know, you because where would you have learned about it or heard right, about right. it, right? I I heard about it. Uh, I don't know if you remember the movie uh, Rosewood. Okay. Uh, yeah, seen John Singleton sure. did. You haven't seen Rosewood? I've never seen Rosewood. Okay, yeah. Rosewood is basically it's a it's a uh, a town in Florida that sure. basically the same thing okay. happened. And because of watching that, uh, someone told me, yeah, the same thing happened uh, the Black Wall Street in Tulsa. Yeah, and you need to you know read up on that. So I was able to go in and check that out. But this was this was you know this was this wasn't in school. Sure, sure, your own and personal learning. Was, yeah, yeah, I just, I just had to go and read up on it on my own. So. Yeah. It's, it's a travesty that it's not it's not taught in schools. And I hope the internet gangsters don't take my black card because I haven't seen Rosewood. You know, you, you know. need to go as soon as I'm, we finish listen, this. Yeah, so by the time y'all hear this, I would have seen Rosewood twice. As soon twice. as we finish this, go, go and see Jeez, Rosewood. Jeez, internet right. gangsters, man. Stay off my <laughs> line. Um, <laughs> but so, you know, one thing Pete Carroll was saying was like, you know, he a lot of things about racism he just didn't know and why didn't he learn it in schools. And you and you think about it like when people are, you know, people who aren't black are coming to black people. A lot of things they're saying is I didn't know. I didn't know. And you think, like, how did you how could you not have known? Right. This has been a big part of history, big part of American history. But like we just had one major example here, the Tulsa race riots. Neither one of us learned it in school. You know, somebody who else who just happened to know about it, shared about it, shared it with us. Like, again, a friend of mine recommended a book for me to read. You saw a movie that was similar to the to those experiences, and they said, "Hey, Ed, you should check this out and learn some more." So, but that kind of information will—you never know. Learning more about racism might explain why what's happening now is actually happening. Because it feels like, as a black person, you're trying to say, "Just look at this." Like, this dude, George Floyd had to die to be said. Like, this stuff is real. This stuff is happening when it shouldn't be the case. Like, there is documented examples of what's happening, what racism is. So, you know. You hate that this gentleman had to lose his life and all people had to lose their lives. But, you know, it, it's it, these acts are finally, finally in the video, of course, is definitely a big part of the reason why people are now, quote unquote, believing what we've been saying and what's been happening. It's not just a random cry. It's real stuff. So today we're going to have a special guest. Before I introduce him, as take a quick story, right? Been knowing this guy literally my entire life. And uh, he's my niece's father, man. But he's like definitely my big brother. And uh, when I was younger, you know, he would uh, bring, of course, my niece some gifts. And he brought me a gift, man, right? Had it wrapped up. 
So I'm thinking like, yo, I can't wait. Got to be like a toy game. It was all these black history books. So I'm looking at this guy like, I thought you loved me, man. What, what are you giving me books for on my holiday? What kind, so, what kind of guy you, right, What kind of guy is this? So, I, but, I, but again, I open it up. And one of the books were about Benjamin Banneker. And as I got to tell you, man, I did reports on Benjamin Banneker like for years after that, man. And, and it's like, you know, I, I studied math a lot because of those books. It was it was crazy. Yeah. It just was something. And I, and I appreciate our guest today for just being a great influence of my life. I knew he'd be a great person to call to talk about, you know, racism and what's going on in black history. So I want to introduce to the Super Podcast family, uh, Dr. Dwayne Williams. He's a doctor of history and African-American studies. How you doing, sir? I'm doing great, man. It's good to talk to family about important issues. Absolutely. Glad that you reached out to me. Yeah. And glad I can support. I think we're going to have a good conversation. Cool. And just for the audience, I call them world. So just if I slip up and say, so world, blah, blah, blah. Y'all know I'm talking to the same person. <laughs> just so you know. You know, you want, you know, you know me well if you can show me that kind of love. Hey. That, that's true. What kind of car blunt you got. Hey, that's man. Great. Listen, you know, it's, it's you and a few that call me Robbie, man. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it goes yeah, both exactly. ways. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I got to remember that. I got to be very formal. Sorry. I, you know, no, gotta make sure. Listen, listen, big bro. It's all good. But we, again, we, we appreciate you being here, man. Definitely looking forward to, to a great conversation. So, it's one of our, you know, we know what's going on around us. And, and, you know, with with COVID keeping us at home, you know, sports or anything, you know, racism is really the front is the front runner of the news today. Right. And, and, and it's a good thing because we can really have some really open and honest conversations about it. And I was telling uh, Ez about how I heard on a podcast of some white guys just saying how, you know, why things about racism isn't wasn't taught in schools. Like we talked specifically about the Tulsa riots and just how like both of mm-hmm. us didn't learn about that until like we were adults. But that was such an, yep. a major American thing in history. So if you could, man, just expound upon like, you know, and I think we know it inherently, like, right? Why racism yep. isn't taught in schools and how has it changed? So if you could just share some insight on that. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll say is, listen, I hope you guys, if you haven't done so already, uh, when you do, I want to take you on a tour of the, when it opens up again, the African-American Fish Museum in Washington. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I always show people when they come with me, there is, there's a quote from James Baldwin which says, history is not principally about the past, it's about the present and all that we do. It's literally present in everything that we do. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things about schools and about teaching about thorny issues is that people think that if they can remain silent, they can jump over history. But what happens is it always comes back. It isn't that history repeats itself, is that it, it never goes away, right? So it's a sustained conversation. And the, the only thing that the only difference, you know, Robbie, is that people who decide to have that conversation or the conversation is going to impose itself on the moment, right? So the current situations that we're you know we're talking about with the pandemic and the disproportionate health impacts on African Americans and Latinos whether we're talking about the, you know, police brutality, all those things. Those are conversations that we need to have, we should have, they should happen in schools. And remember, one of the things I, I, I spend a lot of time training teachers, and what I, can, what I always tell teachers is this, schools, when they work, are an exercise in democracy. When they don't work, right, then they're a failure of democracy. So when we don't have conversations about important issues, we have to ask ourselves, what's the purpose of going to school? Right. Is it just to transfer content? Because we can see, I mean, I know you guys know this, you you got children. I mean, you can do Zoom, but there's something about engaging in conversation in a public space. And schools are a really important part of that. So when schools don't talk about things, what they're really saying is 
we don't want to um, address those most pressing things that impact our students, especially among, uh, you know, communities of color. So one of the reasons that schools don't discuss those things is because school is a reflection of society. And so we think that school can play a role, but guess what? Those conversations aren't happening in boardrooms. They aren't happening in libraries. They are happening in churches. They are happening in a lot of our public spaces because it's a painful issue. And although, as I said, history is present in everything we do, it doesn't mean that people don't try to either forget or they don't try to jump over history. And again, I'll just I'll end with this by saying, listen, when people forget things, they become forgetful. And what I mean by that is it's easy to become forgetful if you never speak these people's names or you never speak on these issues. You talk about racism in school and then people go to corners and they're really scared because you talk about it the wrong way. You could be fired. You could be challenged. But that's OK. Right? School should be a safe space to have the conversation, and it's turned into just another place where we avoid those necessary conversations. So, so now, do you think a lot of times, too, you know, racism may not be discussed because, like, a lot of places may be generally more, you know, might be more white people there than not. They don't. That's like a reminder that, like, this is like they had a a, a, a hand in some history against African-Americans. They don't they don't want to remind themselves that or be reminded of that history. Well, I, I, I'll go a little bit further. I, I think that's a place to start, but I really think it's about this. Often when I teach students, I'm undergraduates, graduate students, high school students, elementary school kids, whatever the kids I'm teaching, young people I'm teaching, people don't understand. They'll say, well, I, don't, I never had anybody in my family who wasn't a slave owner. And this is what I always tell them. But you profited from prejudice. So you could have not, you could have not had anybody in your family who, quote, unquote, owned a slave. That's not the issue. White supremacy, white privilege, okay, um, and prejudice and, and systematic ways of denying people opportunity create space for other people to have the opportunity. Because if somebody doesn't get something, then somebody else takes something. And the reason you want to have that conversation is because guess what? If we have a, if we have uh, you know a real conversation about race, about systemic racism, then we also got to have a reckoning about those things. And I'm not just talking about reparations. I'm talking about the idea that we need to change. Who gets access to opportunities? I mean, Robbie, you went to Williams. I went to I went to McAllister College. We went to elite liberal arts colleges. I didn't think when I was at, at at McAllister, I was the only smart black person that could go to that school. I was the one that had the opportunity to do it. I took advantage of that just as you did. So people don't want to talk about those things because if we have the conversation, then we have to have a reckoning about race, and a reckoning about race will come at a cost for those people who have. Present, who accrued, who have accrued real benefits at the expense of working class people, black people, brown people, indigenous people, you name them. Anybody who's on the margin, the reason we're on the margin isn't because we're not capable, it's because we don't want to have that conversation because conversations come with consequences. And if you at the advantage, why would I why would I yield something to you when it's gonna cost me something, right? The only time that often happens is that. I can afford to be generous if it's really not going to cost me anything. If I'm a billionaire and I give you $1,000 or a $1 million, dollars, I mean, Warren Buffett doesn't really care if he gives me a $1 million. Dollars, he still has $120 billion. Dollars. That's nothing to him. But when we say, hey, we need to have a reckoning where those resources need to be redistributed in a way that is equitable, that is just, and that reflects our shared history, people don't want to do that. No, you know that. They're yeah. not going to have that conversation. Yeah. No way. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned the whole, you know, we both went to liberal arts colleges, you know, again, shout out to Williams College and McAllister. So I got to, got to, got to, man. So, but, but with those experiences, right, I'm sure there were a bunch of times you were the only black, not just guy, black person in your class, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so how did you yeah. deal with it? I, and I used to hate that, man, because they would go, so we wonder what black people think about this. And right. then every eyeballs would come looking at me. I'm like, I don't right. know. I grew up in the manor, right? But then, exactly. but then you start, exactly. you, you start to, but then you under, I started to understand that it was actually important for me to take on that yep. mantle, right? Even though it was yep. scary and I just, and I was like, well, right. I can't answer everybody. I felt like I should say something because maybe these right. people in this class, right. These people in this class will yep. probably never have an opportunity to have to hear this answer. Even if my answer yep. is just my perspective, How, could you expound upon right. that? Right. Your experience. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, uh, again, we went to elite liberal colleges. Elite, elite. Um, yeah. I mean, just make sure everybody knows. Williams and, and, and you know, what I'll tell you is, <laughs> In many ways, I succeeded in spite of McAllister College, but not because of it. And but the reality is that I had great allies. I mean, the person that's responsible for me being, you know, a historian is Peter Ratcliffe. He worked there for you know thirty-five plus years. I met him on the you know the first semester I was there, and he was a person who you know he and I look so different. We come from we look like we came from that different backgrounds, but in reality, we had a lot of things in common. And so Peter was one of those people who encouraged me and said, hey, look, you know, you're on a basketball team. You seem like you're comfortable um, and, you know, you're one of the free African-American students we have. And when he, and these big issues, the same issues are coming up, racism and discrimination and prejudice, the same issues came up. And I felt like I had been given this opportunity and I had an affirmative obligation to speak, to be a witness, not to be the only voice for black people, not for the 35 plus million black people. That wasn't my role. My role was to say, listen, if, if we have a shared experience of being McAllister students or Williams students, we can, that's our common ground. What makes us different is what I bring to the table. And I believe that, um, you know, the writer, Ed, Ed, Ed P. Jones says, we're all worthy of each other. And the only way you can recognize somebody's worthiness is that whatever I bring to the class, my perspective is seen as equal to, not less than yours. And so I felt very strongly I needed to develop my, my kind of intellectual capacity. I need to push myself beyond the boundaries of my experience, being a kid from Chicago, from the South Side, from the West Side, from Jeffrey Manor. But I, need, but I also need to make sure that those people who didn't make it from those spaces, that their presence and their experience was validated, you know, was valued and was seen as worthy of, of something that you talked about and that, that I really took on and what I, how I carried myself and how I, you know, approached myself in class. I'm, I was very intentional about making sure that people realize that there were many right ways to be a black person. I just found one. I wasn't the only black person that's big, but I found one way to do it. And so you had a model. And so you couldn't dismiss and devalue the worth of me or people like me. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I did it, you know? Yeah. See, you know, at Williams, man, it's like what, 2,200 students, maybe that much, man. And it was 150 black students. So, you know, right. I felt like, but it was weird. I felt like I talked about being black at Williams more than any other place in my life. I mean, it was it was always yeah. coming up. And I think yeah. as as heard me tell the story before, so in at Williams, you know, you have these dorms and the and the each floor is called an entry and you have a J A. And yeah. in every in every week you you have what's called snacks where you get together to talk about race, you know, sexuality, religious it's it's like an open forum because you have these twenty right. or so freshmen, whatever. And I remember there's a guy from Minnesota of all places and uh, my best friend and I, we were college roommates. And so we're talking about race and he goes, you know, I just got I gotta say it. You know, I, I, you guys are the smartest black guys I've I've ever met in my life, and so. <laughs> <laughs> what are you What are you trying to say? I was like, what are you trying to say? And so, and so, world, I knew, I knew, like, and I told him, I said, you know what? I should punch you in the head. 
But I understand that you just that was you have no idea what you're talking about. I'm probably the first right, black person right. you met. Right. Sounds like we're gonna right. use it as and an opportunity. Get, and, and engage as an equal. Exactly. So not that you just met them, but he has to engage with you as an equal because you are a Williams student and he is a Williams student. And so those other black people, and of course, me living having lived in Minnesota for ten years, of course we know there are lots of capable black people who he could have met, sure. but he wasn't interested in doing that. His interest came with the common ground mm-hmm. of being in that space in Western Massachusetts with you. And really, you know, Robbie, what I would tell you is one of my heroes is the, is the first heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson. And he always would say, look, I am unapologetically black. I'm not saying I'm better than you, but I'm never less than you. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if you want models of how to be black, I got 10 other people who are different than me, who are equally capable as me, if you're interested in doing that. But I would also say this, that wasn't what your interest was, right? right. There's a curiosity to having a Robbie, to having me in a, a school setting. But there's also a threat because I can tell you that the more students become become capable and we, we, we demystify all these things about our capability, it becomes a threat. Because then people start saying, well, hey, we got to look at how many, how many Latinos, African-Americans or whatever the, the category of human beings we're talking about it is because that is seen as a threat. And so it's fine if it's one or two Robbies or one or two Dwayne. But I can tell you that 30 years, 35 years after I left college, the same issues that I talked about as a freshman, okay, are still there because at this point we should have remedied that inequality. There are, there are so many capable black students. There are so many capable Latino, Latinx students. Uh, Native Americans who should be in those places. Because here's the thing, when you go to Williams, and you know this, when you go to McAllister, I can tell you this, my life was transformed by going to those places. And so I'm interested in having more people go into those places. Because I know that despite the real systemic racism that exists in those places, there's real also social capital that you take out of it. There's a reason that you and I are having this conversation and you've done the work you've done, I've done the work I've done. And it was enabled by accruing that social capital. It's not just the the degree, it's the relationships that we have that have allowed us to have some measure of success. And and that's what you want to see happen and and valued. Yeah, and I think like you said, it gave me the chops and the rep to talk about, you know, being black and really understanding what that means, right? I think going yeah. to Williams because it was so East Coast, you know, before yeah. I left, you know, you, I'm thinking black means your family's from the South, right? Right. You, you know, you right. only eat ribs at your barbecue uh, and spaghetti, right? right? That's that's black. Right. You know, you know, so your parents are from, right. you know, Tennessee, right. Mississippi. Yep. And, right, right, yep. green, right, exactly. So then I go yeah, out right, East baby. and it's like two of me like that. And everybody right. else got folks from the Caribbean. They they take right. plantains to their barbecue. They exactly. they are disgusted that I take spaghetti to the barbecue. You know what I'm saying? It's They're like what are you doing? It's like what is that? They get you know. I'm like y'all eat fried bananas at a barbecue. What is this? But again, like, and and then you start exactly. to see that there are people who they maybe didn't grow up with all black people like I did, right? Right. And so, but right. I, but right. I, but I can't sit here and say they're less black because they're still dealing with the same crap no, I am. Again, right. many ways to be a black person. Find one. This is Robbie. This is what I always tell people. There's many ways to be a black person. Mm-hmm. The only thing I ask you to do is don't be a confused black person. Wow. Right? Don't mm-hmm. be confused. Con- confusing gets you in trouble. You can assert that you can be Republican, you can be Democrat, you can be this, you can do art, you can do math, you can this. Decide what you are. Ground yourself in the experience. And it's I found that the students who struggled at McAllister were those who came there and got kind of bolo punched by 
racism and had never experienced it, but also were kind of confused about how they wanted to reconcile that. And some of that I forgive because here's the thing, Robbie, when you go to Williams or you go to McAllister and you're 18 years old, you're still trying to figure out who you are. Yeah. And people expect you to be an expert on being black and you're just trying to figure out how to be an 18 or 19 or 20 year old person and you you come with, you get cloaked with these other responsibilities. So part of it is that there has to be a space, and I think universities are a unique space, for you to just grow and develop as a person and do that in a way that allows you to figure out what you are. And it shouldn't always come weighted with that issue of race, but it's it's undeniable that it does. And it's foolhardy if you don't actually figure that out. Again, you got kids from all over the African diaspora, they're from the West Indies, they're from West Africa, they're from South Africa. I had the same experience at McAllister. I mean, I'm a Chicagoan. I don't, I'm a Chicago kid. No matter where I go, all my life, people ask me, where am I from? I haven't lived in Chicago since I was 18 years old, really. I am a Chicagoan, okay? That's who I am. I'm a black Chicagoan. But I also know that's just one experience. So like you, I expanded my notion of what it means to be black, what it means, what those experiences are. And I was fine with that because at least the people that I built relationships with, they validated that once they realized, oh, okay, this is how he does his thing, okay? And he, he lets me do my thing. You know, and then that's that's how you learn. That's how you learn to again. I'll go back to my earlier statement. That's how you learn that we all are worthy of each other. Yeah. When you realize there are other ways that people can be, and not just black people, but there are other people who come from different experiences and the relationships I had. I I learned both directly and indirectly that it was important to me to, to value the worth of other people and have that same expectation for myself. Wow. So should African-American history be taught with American history? I know you probably have a very unique answer since you are a doctor of both history oh, and African-American oh, listen, studies. Listen, so it's so funny. When you talked to me on Friday, I was thinking about this and I was taking my run on Saturday. And I just thought, Rob, you know, I've taught so many courses. This is amazing many courses I've taught. And I'll say this. African-American history is American history. Right. And American history is African-American history. We divide things up because we want to expose students just at a structural level to certain things. So if I, I've taught the American history survey, all aspects of it. I've taught specific access, uh, specific aspects of it, Reconstruction, Civil War, you know, World War II. But here's the thing. There is no story. There is no American story in which African Americans aren't at the center of that experience. Right. Mm -hmm. The beginning, you know, we have we have July 4th, 1776 as the creation of what we call the United States. But the America that we know, know begins in 1619. Right. Ask the people in Virginia. I got a shirt that I wear. It's an orange shirt that's 1619 for our ancestors. That's the first time that we know a person came, was brought to this country in 16, as an enslaved person. And the first free person happened, I think, in 1627. So the, the conversation, if it starts at one point. How do you teach students that? If students have spent all their life in school learning that American history starts with, you know, the American Revolution, then that's what forms their identity. If they don't realize that American history starts with indigenous communities followed by the importation of African Americans and, and then what that mix of European, African, and indigenous communities, what they produce in North America and all across the Americas, if you don't start there, if you start your timeline in the wrong place, then you're going to end up with the wrong interpretation. So when you say American history, I always say you can learn a lot by when and where you enter the conversation about what American history is. And there, and, and, I, and I'm not of the, I, 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 I'm always troubled when people say, oh, kids shouldn't learn African-American history, or there was a push in, I think it was Arizona, they were trying to get kids who are Latin American, of Latin American descent from the Latin American diaspora to not learn Latin American history. I was like, listen, so basically you want to take 
aspects of American history out because of whatever political perspective we have. Mm -hmm. But that's actually not teaching history because history, no matter whether it's labeled American, African-American, Western civilization, history, I would define it as change over time. The equation of history is change over time. If I wrote it as a math equation, it would be that division. You have history, you have change, and, and then over time, that's what equals history. And you ask yourself, what's happening in those moments? And once you provide context, content, and connection to that, to that process, that's how you understand history. Otherwise, you get what most kids say. So, for instance, Robbie, when I go into a classroom of teachers, students, I don't care what it is, my one goal when it comes to history, American, whatever it is, is to make sure that when I leave, they don't say that history is boring. And it's only boring if somebody sits up and gives you a boring textbook or make you memorize facts. Yeah. That's not history. Mm -hmm. That's memorization. That's actually not history. History is change over time with appropriate context, with the appropriate content, and helping you make the connections. That is, why is what you're teaching me now relevant for the life that I want to live? If you can do that, then you're actually teaching history, and that's always about American history. So it's, it's funny that you know, you're talking about that because, you know, with uh, Memorial Day just passing, and, you know, my kids had a homework assignment about what Memorial uh -huh. Day really is, so on and so forth. And I remember just before they got it, I saw something online about how, like, you know, there's there's a lot of African American history that goes into Memorial Day, right? It's like Memorial started, Day, yeah. Right, it's like started by, and maybe you, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think those soldiers who fought in on the yep. uh, Union side, they bury yep. all of the dead, and then they, they it was called Decoration Day, and so yep. and so That's exactly right, right, and so but then when my kid's video pops up, none of that's mentioned. It literally starts right. as like some other general, some president commissioned it as decoration that they thought it'd right. be a good idea. Right. And it's like, yo, this is not, these are my children, right? I just heard the real version and their school right. is mandating that they learn this additional version that as to your point is like, where's your start point? And they're, they're, they're actively, the right, actively giving them. And I won't say it was malicious per se. I'm sure it's just part of the no. systemic stuff, but it's like, hey, it's probably easy to, cause, cause to your point, when you get into the whole, these black soldiers, Union soldiers, like, is, is it more to explain? And then they just make a decision. It's easier to say, it started here with this person, and then you go off, and then everybody goes, okay, that makes sense. Right. You know? Right. And listen, people, and, and that's just being intellectually lazy. Again, when I walk into a school, and I often go to schools to train teachers, train principals how to run school, you know, I've done a lot of stuff. And it's so funny. The first question I asked the principal was this, who is the person teaching history in your class, uh, in your school. And the reason I ask that question is twofold. One, I'm a historian. I'm interested in what kind of training that person has. And often, the people who are not being trained in history, okay? You train, you train people in reading or science or math, but, you know, history gets usually taught by someone who has some interest in it, but they don't have formal training. And that's, you're really lucky. That in a, a sign of a strong school is what kind of training does the person teaching social studies slash history have? That's the first thing I, I figure out. And then the second thing is this. We know, and I'm not a big standardized test person. I don't believe in high-stakes testing, but it's an, it's an assessment. So I always tell principals, one way to make sure you never get fired is to have a person who is strong, who can teach literacy, and another person who is strong, who can teach social studies skills and history, because that's the way you elevate your scores. If you're into that, you better have somebody in your school who's not just teaching you know, literature and fiction and poetry, which are all very important, but you have somebody who's teaching nonfiction how to interpret information. If you have that, you'll see in any successful school, there's somebody in that school who's doing a really good job of doing both of those things. And so when people leave things out, 
then what they're doing is making students less able to compete. And I always ask principals, do you think parents' intention in sending their kids to your school is to make them less able? Because I hate it as a, I hate it as a college professor, Robbie, when kids would say to me, I never learned it before. I wish I had learned it in high school. Oh. I wish I had learned it in elementary school. That just drives me nuts. Because oh. that means somebody didn't do their job. Mm -hmm. That means somebody didn't say that this was important. We always celebrate all these rituals, all right? So Memorial Day is just a ritual of memory. Uh, uh, that everyone should understand it. And we should all want to value that. There's nothing wrong with valuing how it. So when you leave someone out or roll it to in place, you're saying that, hey, I'm okay making someone less able to interpret and, 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 and gain some meaning for this particular historical moment. And I always ask, why do you want to do that? So if it's not sinister, then to me, that's just a kind of intellectual laziness that's not acceptable. And most parents have a great trust in school. They say, hey, I figured you got Robbie and Dwayne there. I thought they knew what they were doing. I didn't know they were leaving stuff out. When I pointed out, right. they're like, oh, no, I, I didn't want that. When, when parents find out like you, I mean, you are a very engaged parent, but lots of parents, when they find out, they'll go, well, I did want them to know that. No, I actually wanted that. I wanted that to happen, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that that's not, I'm not surprised that there's a difference. I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed to know that having been in lots of school systems, people, it's okay to make mistakes, Robbie. It's not okay to practice mistakes. And I see people practicing mistakes. And that's where I get, that's where the fire for me gets really burning hot. Wow. It's okay to make mistakes. Yeah. Don't practice it. Right. Don't make it the habit of, of how you do things in your curriculum. Hope you're enjoying the show. Thank you for listening. We're going to take a quick break to pay some bills. You are listening to the Super Duper Podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by Rob Reynolds. They are a fashion accessories company. They sell pocket squares and now face coverings. They also sell custom pocket squares, ties, and bow ties for your wedding and other special occasions. Follow them at their website at wherrobreynolds.com and also on Instagram at wherrobreynolds. That's W-E-A-R-R-O-B-R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S. Order yours today. So now, again, with everything that's going on, we talked about this at the top of the recording, just how a lot of, um, you know, non-black people are reaching out to their black friends and kind of, you know, offering their... Uh, compassion and support, you know what I'm saying? Want to be better people, wanting to be more educated. And, you know, you hear a lot, of, a lot of a lot of people are asking for white people to be more, to educate themselves about racism. But I do have to ask, should the same plea be made to black people? Like, you know, we, we're talking about history and racism. Like, how much do we really know? Like, in the classes that you taught, how many students, not granted, I'm sure the school population may have dictated this, but like, how many students in your class were white versus black right do you think black people have a good handle on our own history no that the short answer is no yeah. i'm gonna give you some haiku that's like all history haiku. haiku the shortest answer the history haiku the shortest answer to the easiest question no but that is because we are undereducated but that's that's reflective of i mean robbie the best way to put it is this the same discrepancies we have in health in the economy we have an education. We have an historical literacy, right? We disproportionately don't know things, right? Well, how can you know stuff if you don't get access to it? How can you know stuff if people are not allow you to have access even when you want it? I mean, I, no, all jokes aside, I, you are one of the most curious, intellectually curious and engaging children. I, I really, I, I, I watch you learn how to read. I know what you know. 
But here's the thing. If somebody couldn't feel and feed that curiosity with information you would have known, how is that your fault? Yeah. So it's not your fault, right? Because you should. You, there's a reasonable, expectna- reasonable expectation that when you go to school, you would learn things that are well educated. Some person want to know. If they leave stuff out, that puts a tremendous burden on you because your hunger doesn't go away. Your curiosity doesn't become, um, become less. It just means that you delay getting to the point you were always going to get to. You were always going to learn your history. But there are lots of people who lose that momentum and they go, well, oh, I didn't. Um, I, if I had known that, I would have stayed engaged. You know, mm-hmm. I, I would have learned. I would have wanted to learn more about history, but they never taught me that stuff. So we do a great disservice with, with uh, black people. And that, again, all students are undereducated about their history, both the complexity um, of it, the content of it, the depth of it. Um, it's not valued in the same way. And if, they, if we had students or people who had a, a fuller and more comfortable and confident understanding of history, some of these issues wouldn't go away. So there are people who are outside the African-American community who can be great allies. We used to say um, in the anti-apartheid movement that, that white people and even black Americans, we can't be liberators of other people, but our actions can be liberating. Meaning that there are things we can do that can make me a good ally to you. And I see a lot of that in this current moment that we're in. There are a lot of young white people. They're not trying to explain the experiences of black people. They're saying, you know what? I don't need to understand what it means to be black to understand what what right and wrong is, what what justice and freedom are. I get that part. And it's my responsibility as a young person to add my voice to the conversation that says, you know what? I'm just really cannot understand, will not abide by the concept that somebody who is black, a young woman is going to be killed in her bed, a guy's going to be choked out. Like, I don't need to, I don't need to know everything about the history of black people, but what I do know about it, I know that that's not acceptable. So being a good ally is a one way to do that if you're outside the community. Within the community, I think you have responsibility to find resources, and we who are older and know better have a responsibility of sharing that information. Because I want you to be a full citizen. If you don't have all the information you need, how can you make an informed choice about what you want to do and how you want to participate in what's going on? Mm-hmm. That puts you at a great disadvantage, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's wrong. Yeah. So, and, and to that point about it being so complex, right? It's like, I feel like we talked about this in one episode about the bystander effect in terms of like a, a problem seems so great and so big that you feel like, well, mm-hmm. it's, it's too much for me to handle. I'll just kind of stay on the sidelines. Now, do, and you're talking about right. the complexity of history. Do you feel like people are just like, well, I just generally know bad stuff happened to black people and that's cool. Like, are there some basic things people should just know or that's probably, is that a loaded question? Because again, it's, it's I, I so bad. I think it's a loaded question. I, I, no, because I, I think this, I think that we need to create space for people to, to know and learn things. Mm-hmm. I think that we need to chunk things and what we should ask ourselves are what are the most important things that people need to know? And I always tell people, it's not just the fact. It's how do you interpret something, right? You got a president talking about fake news. How do you distinguish between quote-unquote fake news and authentic news? That's a skill. So I'm going to teach you that. And I'm going to trust that if you're in my class or other class, once you know how to make that distinction, that you can use that skill, then you can figure out for yourself. I have great trust that when people have the requisite skills, they can then make smart choices. So I'm talk- I build skills. And then I say, hey, look, if you really want to know more about slavery, here are 10 books that go on that. Mm-hmm. But, but even if I gave you those 10 books, if you couldn't interpret them, you wouldn't know how to do it. You wouldn't know what's a good source, what's a bad source. So I teach students and teachers about sources, about interpretations, about um, how do you cross-check facts. 
what why is context important? Why is a book that was written in 1968, you know, going to be different or, you know, uh, or, 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 or less informative in some ways than the one written in 2020 or vice versa, right? Mm-hmm. Who are the people who are asking the right questions? Those are all skills, asking questions, understanding context, understanding how to evaluate sources, okay? Uh, understanding how history is made, right? History is made through the reconstruction, the rewriting, and the reinterpreting of the past. Those are three steps. And if you were in my class, those are the first three things you learn before I even get to the content. Let's just make sure we understand what the process is so when we come to a source, we can then step back and say, how was this thing reconstructed? Who wrote it? How did they offer a reinterpretation? And let me give you one example. Robbie, there are 10,000 books on the Civil War. If there was just one way to interpret the Civil War, we'd only need one book. But because there are many interpretations, you have so many books. And that goes for any, any topic. So people need to be overwhelmed. They just need to understand that we can chunk. What's one thing that's important to you? What's one thing about our history that's relevant for your experience? Again, what's the connection? Why do I want to learn something about police brutality or policing? It was relevant for my life. That's why. Yeah. All right? And I have enough of those examples, that's fine. And it's up to someone like me. I have an affirmative obligation as a scholar to share what I know. So if I share those things, then maybe I can put a spark in someone and say, here's the things I'm interested in. You can't cover all of history. I can't cover it. No one can. But I can figure out what's interesting to you. And that's how you chunk it. Right? Yeah. You ask you, what's interesting to you? All right? Man, I got to say, man, you sound like a tough teacher. Like, I feel like you're one of those teachers that are like, Mr. Griggs, what's on page 79? Like, hey, man, 79. You are so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get the 79. I was like, calling last night. Man, I didn't get the 79. Trying to get through the sources and, man. No, you, you, no, You're a cold no. calling type teacher, man. That's you? Cold no, calling? No, no, Listen, look, I, I, when I was younger, I served in Jasmine. I used to take Jasmine to class with me. Um, and she used to be like, Daddy. I say, listen, I'm using a Socratic method, but I'm not trying to have a gotcha moment. So I'm not a gotcha professor. Mm-hmm. I'm more the kind of person I'm going to lead with a set of questions. And what I'm saying is I need you to be comfortable with being uncomfortable not like aha mr griggs do you know this but hey i got a series of questions for the for the class i want you to talk about it with your partner and talk about share your thought and you say well, i don't know about this is why i'm in the class but i want you to know why you think what you think and i want to give students the opportunity to practice it right so one of the things i know from the research and my own experience is this no matter what i say is the great professor quote unquote students construct meaning and their understanding about any topic in their conversation with their peers. So it's my job to facilitate questions that allow you to have a conversation. So if you and I are talking, you and one of your boys are talking, you're going to have a conversation. That, that vernacular understanding, what you say when you're just talking to your boy about a topic, an example I always give students is this. If I ask you to talk about slavery, everybody looks at the sky and they're scared and they're worried. But if I ask you, hey, who's your favorite Chicago bull? You got all kinds of opinions, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So... You just and, and all you, you you form that opinion based on your experience or what you know, what you think you don't know. So everybody has some knowledge that they can draw from. My job is to give you some content that can help you formulate your own understanding. Right. That's the job that I do. So I'm not going to have a got you because my thing is, I don't want you to leave the class um, scared about history. I want you to leave the class excited about it. And I want you to leave the class having questions that you still need to have answered in that tw- 10, 12, or 14, or 16-week semester. So if we get to the end of the semester and you still have questions, my job has been accomplished because I've given you something, both content, and I've given you something to take with you. And I always ask students, what's one thing you bring in the class? What's one thing you picked up in class? And what's one thing you leave in the class with? 
So I'm passionate. I'm fair. And my toughness really comes in wanting you to be a better and excited about history. Sure. Man. So, man, you really, this is a great world. It really is, man. So a couple more questions. So, you know, we talked about the uh, your history in Minnesota in the beginning. And just, uh, you know, and then you were talking about some work that you have going on. Like, were you surprised? Not, surprise is the wrong word. But I guess when I think about Minneapolis, I never think that something like this would happen in the city of Minneapolis. Right? you think about Prince and, you know, n- anything but racial tension. But, you know, I'm assuming and based on what we're hearing now, that's definitely not the case. I guess, could you share any insight mm-hmm. about, you know, Minnesota, Minneapolis and of course what happened to, to yeah. George Floyd with the police? Listen. I'm going to send you the piece that I'm writing, and here's the again, here's the history I go. Minnesota is a land of ten thousand lakes. When I went there, it was a land of hope and opportunity for some. It was also, it has also been a place that's been a real impediment for opportunities for Black people. It depends on who you are, right? So guess what? We got South Side, West Side of Chicago. We got North Minneapolis and South Minneapolis mm-hmm. uh, in the Twin Cities, and so. In those same places, the only difference between Minneapolis and Chicago or Detroit and Ferguson is the scale. The same set of issues are there because guess what? The same set of meeting systems. I, how, what, what, happens when you inter- what happens when you encounter a black person on the street or in the workplace? So in Chicago, we may have more black people. But at the reality, the, the issues are still there. Housing is still an issue. Access to education is still an issue. So I'm not surprised because... I know enough about the history of our country to know that, guess what? People are going to other places seeking opportunities, but what, what, what they can't transcend are those, are those, again, how race is socially constructed. What it is that I see, what it is that I think I know about you culturally, socially, economically, when I encounter you, and then what choices am I going to make about who gets what opportunities, right? So Robbie and Dwayne are the exceptions, but the rule is that there's still people whether it's a small number of people in Minneapolis or larger in Chicago or New York or L.A., whether you're black or brown or you know, native, right? People have in their head a conversation about who gets what slice. That was true in Minnesota. Now, the only difference is the flavor of it, right? There's a Minnesota nice. And so going to McAllister helped me understand, hey, you're only receiving in some racism that don't look anything like it might look in Chicago, mm-hmm. okay? It may not feel anything like it looks in L.A. or Boston. Okay, or Philly, or or St. Petersburg, or Birmingham, but how people say it, the flavor doesn't change the the consequences. And if you don't believe me, look at how COVID is impacting people. Chicago is a different city than Birmingham. Okay, it's a different city than than Newark, but the disproportionate impacts play out the same because the same set of physical and psychological and social structures are still impeding the lives of Black people. Right. If you have a system that is based on the uh, on the irrational idea of white supremacy, you're going to get those same results. And my dad always says, you can't make sense out of things that don't make sense. White supremacy doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's not a reality and how it impedes people's lives. So Minnesota is just a different space. Right. And the intersection of race, place and space has, whether it's Minneapolis, Chicago or any other place, has still always played out. People think, well, hey, if I go, if I'm the only black person here, or I'm in a small black community, or I'm in a rural community, it doesn't make a difference. You can't escape blackness. You can't escape racism in that way. You think you can, 
but you really don't because ultimately at the end of the day, it's like my one of my professors always told me, he said that when I was a graduate student, Philip Schwartz told me he used to go to Brazil and he would always ask the same question. They would say, you Americans come with your ideas about race, but we're different in Brazil. And Philip Schwartz um, would always say this. He would say, I, okay, if that might be the case, but can you explain, please explain to me why all the poor people in Brazil are black? And I always the same question. That is, in Minnesota, why is there a disproportionate number of black people in North Minneapolis and South Minneapolis? Is that because they all are incapable? Everybody's incapable? That's what we're talking about? Are all the people on the west side of Chicago are incapable? All the people in Jefferson Manor are incapable? That's what we're saying? That's why they don't have the opportunities? That's why housing and crime and health are the same? No, that's not true. So it is, it is, uh, this is not a boogeyman system, all right? Systems, we talk about structural racism, we're talking about individual and collective decisions that are made by people within those different places. That's what I mean by system. I'm not talking about the man in the closet. I'm talking about the fact that there are housing decisions that are made about how resources get distributed. And when those resources are distributed inequitably, unjustly, that's white supremacy, because in every single instance, the pattern of behavior still ends up where Philip Schwartz talked about. Black people are always at the bottom. And everybody's trying to run from their blackness, because if you run from it, maybe you won't get tarred as bad as someone else. So you make regional distinctions, neighborhood distinctions. But the reality is that we're talking about a battle over the access to resources. And either you get them or you don't. And guess what? If you don't get them, you get scruggled. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't get the things you're supposed to get. Mm-hmm. And if you get access to them, education, health, whatever you want to call it, then you're able to make choices. But again, Robbie, I don't think I'm the smartest guy. I think I'm a guy that was lucky. And I think I'm a guy that, that took advantage of the opportunity. And I worked hard. I put the work in. But I can tell you 10 guys that lived on Hoxie, they were just as smart as me. Mm-hmm. OK. Yeah. But it makes a difference if you go to Whitney Young or St. Ignatius. We both know that. Right. And but I also believe that there are people who could have been successful in those places that weren't just me and you. But I also know that the the systematic decision making that is made is designed to have the few and not the many mm-hmm. get access to that. And people are comfortable with that. Yeah. And, and so, that's a problem. Yeah. That's a problem. And so with George Floyd in Minneapolis, of course, the focus is is on the proli- police brutality that is of course consistent and and if you think about it. I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, like a lot of the racism we talk about is like some larger force, super force like mm-hmm. the police that is affecting black people. And it's just to see just how they treated and how that one officer, of course, had his knee on George Floyd's neck. It's, it was right. just like, hey, nothing's going to happen. This is this is regular, regular uh, mode of the day. Um, and but, I think, listen, yeah. but listen, we, Robbie, we come from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Chicago police are some of the toughest, brutal. I mean, we got Fred Hampton. I can go all, we can go all day. I mean, the history of police brutality. The only thing that's different, that's significant is we were under a 10 week. We had a pent up amount of time. Mm-hmm. We had the young man killed Aubrey in Georgia. We had the young woman, Brianna, murdered in Louisville. And then now we see this public lynching of George Floyd. It's the confluence of those things. But the actual methods, those methods are used by all kinds of police departments. Even since this, the, the, the tragedy of, of, uh, of, of Floyd's death, we see people still using yeah. those same brutal techniques, abusing their badge, because guess what? If you abuse your police power, there's no consequence. The, the amazing thing about what's happening now is that 
the police officers were automatically fired and the other police officers were being held accountable. That's the exception, not the rule. I'll end by saying this. Keep in mind that the four officers who were involved in the murder of George Floyd were fired. But the guy who used the choke on Eric Garner was on the force for five years, Robbie. He collected his check. He collected his 24 checks times five years before anything happened to him. There's something wrong with that. That's not good policing. And my final point is this. When guys do the things, when police officers abuse that power, they don't just put the, the lives of black people and other citizens um, uh, you know, at risk. They also make it difficult for other police officers. And that's the thing that bothers me. Hey, listen, I don't think all police officers are bad. I think bad police officers are bad. And I think that the culture of policing um, is reinforced by the idea that when one guy does something bad, you have a choice. You can either stand back, stand with your brother. But the reality is that when someone gets murdered, as George Floyd did, it makes it unsafe for other police officers. And that's the conversation we're not having. Right. We're not having that conversation because I'm going to tell you right now, when I'm interacting with a police officer, I'm mindful of those things. Mm -hmm. I'm very mindful of that experience. And I'm very mindful of the fact that because Floyd was killed, I don't know if this is going to be a guy's going to approach this, approach this interaction with me more gingerly. Or is he going to be, is he going to project all his fears about black men onto my body? Mm -hmm. Okay. I've been stopped by the police 12 times in the place where I live. Robbie, I've never got a ticket. Not one not one. I'm going to stop 12 times by the police. What is a 50-plus-year-old black man who's a professional? You got nothing. I, I ain't did nothing. Yeah. Okay? Huh. But I do know this. If you approach me and you're scared, if you approach me and you got a conversation in your head about what black men are and what they aren't, you know it. Every, all of us know it. Okay? That can go haywire. And that's bad for black men, it's bad for our families, it's bad for our community. But the thing that's not being said, Robbie, it's also bad for policing. Because if you can't, if I see you as a source of mistrust, it's going to be more dangerous for you, too. Yeah. Because I won't, because, yeah, because it's like when I see you coming, I, I, I'm thinking my own, I got my own conversation in my head, right? Yeah. Right. Mm. I mean, the case of Brianna um, Taylor in Louisville, she's at home sleep. Now, there's a no-knock warrant. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, Robbie. I'm a pacifist. I am. Mm -hmm. I don't solve any problems with the use of violence. I got one exception to that, Robbie. If I'm at home with my children and somebody enters my home, I'm sorry. I'm going to hurt you. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. I, I work hard never to be in a situation where I have to use violence. But understand what I'm saying. If I'm at home and you enter my home, you have no business in that home, I'm actually going to kill you. Mm -hmm. Now, if the police do that, what can you do? Yeah. This young woman was home. She was asleep. She didn't have a gun. She didn't do anything. She was murdered. That made it unsafe for the police. They came in. The boyfriend used his gun. He had a legal owner of his gun. He shot. The police shot back. She got killed. Here's the thing. Everybody involved was, was, um, was, was unsafe. And this, these techniques do not keep police officers safe. They certainly don't keep black people safe. They don't keep brown people safe. They don't keep black women safe. We know that. Mm -hmm. But the other, again, they don't keep, nobody wins in this thing. And that's the thing, people that owe the police officers, no, police officers can have all that. They can have behind the bass all they want. They're not safer. I'm trying to hide behind citizenship, which is not getting support because, again, you're not seeing me as worthy. And police officers are trying to hide behind the bass because they know there are things they do that are not appropriate. But hiding behind that bass doesn't make you safer. It actually means you that can be less courageous in your interaction with people. And that gets lost. Again, I'll say this. 
That's how white supremacy works. It makes people think illogical things. It doesn't make sense to use these techniques because it'll make your job harder. Wow. Why would you do it? You don't get any benefit out of it. You don't. You kill a person and your life doesn't get better. Trust me. I know enough about the police officers who committed those acts. I've seen the research. And you hear what they say. They're not, they're, they're not oh, I killed somebody and that's it. They may say that stuff in bravado way, but the reality is you've taken a life in a way that's unjust. This wasn't a bad guy. This wasn't a bad person. You took a person's life unjustly. And trust me, it has a big impact. And it makes you an unsafe and a, a unsafe officer. It makes it unsafe for all people around you. Not a good combination. Yeah. And world, you really dropped some gems on this man, and I appreciate you making the uh, super duper podcast listeners a lot smarter uh, with this episode. Um, just a couple more things, man. Just uh, are there any resources that you think people should be made aware of, especially in light of we're talking about police brutality and white supremacy and systemic systemic racism? Like just any books uh, or movies they should watch. I know you were talking about a podcast. Did you have any resources you could share right now? Yep. Well. Uh... I'm working on a podcast uh, with a colleague called Black and Brown All Around. We talk about a, a wide range of issues of that, you know, stand at the intersection of race, class, you know, economy, so that, you know, we have our own podcast. The book I've been recommending uh, for folks is a book called Stamped at Birth. It's about the history of, of racism um, in the country. It's a book that I think everybody, um, you know, should get because I think it's not only well-written, but gives you a way to kind of easily understand uh, you know, Stamped from Birth is a just a brilliant book. It's by uh, this scholar called Ibram uh, Kendi. And that book, I would say if I had to have, if you only had to have one book, that's the place I would start. I mean, you're asking a guy who got a stack of books on his thing now. I mean, you know, that's unreasonable. But I can give you one book. I would say anybody listening to this podcast, anybody who hasn't read that book, could go to wherever you buy your book. Where you acquire your books and get stamped from the beginning. Stamped from it the is, beginning. Uh, okay. And, and stamped from the beginning. It is, um, you know, it, it's the full title is Stamped from the Beginning, the, the Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Stamped from the Beginning, the Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. There's a, you know, audio book. I mean, I've, I've read the book. I've, Use that, you know, students who didn't want to have a, 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 a text, I had them listen to it. The book is amazing. Okay. Stamp from the Stamped beginning. Stamp from the beginning. And then, and then the podcast yep. is Black and Brown All Around. Black and Brown All Around. And I'm, um, the next thing, if you're interested in my reading, is, like I said, in the next 48 hours, I'm coming out with an essay called We Are All Worthy of Each Other, um, The Murder of, 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 of George Floyd. And it's just a short piece. It's an editorial piece that um, I'm writing um, for, you know, in response to at, at the request of, of, of my mentor, Peter Radcliffe. So, you know, that's one, you know, my, my little one page theme gives you my full context of how I'm looking at this current situation around pandemic and protests. And, um, you know, if you want more knowledge, it's fine. So, you know, we can talk more about this, but look, I'm glad you guys allowed me to, you know, share my thinking and I want you guys to come and join the podcast and, and let's, let's keep this conversation going. You know, I think it's, it's not a one hit wonder. Let's, 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 let's sustain the conversation. That's the best way to create some change. Sure. Absolutely. And uh, again, just want to thank you for coming on and just sharing everything. I know I learned a lot. How about you, Ed? Uh, 
this was just just so insightful. Thank, thank you. you very much. Yeah. So again, nope, my, my pleasure. Yeah, I want to thank again Jeffrey Manor's own Dr. Dwayne Williams, uh, Doctor of History and African American Studies. This is the Super Duper Podcast. We thank you for listening. Again, Black Lives Matter. Please take care of yourselves and be safe. God bless. Or do the case stand for kamikaze? The Jay Silent is everywhere. You can feel them falling. Sure, lately, I've been up late with what? demons in my basement trying to get me to hate this. What? Life thinking I should be further, and then I choke up. As soon as I got silent, then the truth spoke up. This said, How you know you ain't perfect? Let that soak up and soak in. You know how you know that you're blessed. I woke up. Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific time, only on Netflix. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.